Okay, so thanks everyone for joining the latest episode of this 11th century podcast. And today I'm joined by Monica Green, um, a historian of medicine, a fellow of the Medieval Academy of America, and an expert on medicine between the 11th and the 13th centuries. And, and she's particularly interested in bringing scientific um, analysis into dialogue with, with textual sources. Um, and that kind of approach has been showcased in her recent article in the American Historical Review, which on, on, on the four black deaths, which you, all, you should all go and read as soon as you finish listening to this podcast. So thank you very much for joining me, Monica. Now, thank you. Thank you for having me. So this podcast is kind of focused, this, this conversation is focused really on, on someone called Constantine the African. And I thought I'd just start, Monica, by saying, who was Constantine the African? I always call him Constantine. <laughs> I don't know if that's an Americanism or not. Potato, um, potato. <laughs> who was he? Uh, actually, we know uh, quite a bit about him, which is also what makes frustrating the things that we don't know about him. But what we do know about him is he is an emigre to Italy in the uh, later 11th century. Um, he probably arrives in Italy just a little bit before we begin to have evidence of him. So probably around the um, 18, I mean, the, the 1070s. And he is um, uh, coming from uh, what is now modern day Tunisia. In the 11th century, it would be called Ifriqiya. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is part of uh, Islamic North Africa. And so it's a, an area that has been Islamicized um, for close to four centuries by the time that, that he leaves. And one of the things we don't know about him, and uh, one of the reasons why his name is so interesting, is we're not 100% sure whether he was a Muslim who emigrated and converted or a Christian who came. So either way, he was clearly, uh, Arabic was his native language. If he was Christian, there's the possibility that he already knew some Latin before he came. And uh, we're not at the point, first of all, I I have to say that all of my work on Constantine is done basically just working on the Latin side of his work because I'm not trained in Arabic. There, there will be basically a, just a whole nother generation of scholars that need to, to run the, the Arabic text that he's translating from. But the, the point is, is um, he's an Arabic speaker. He emigrates to um, mainland Italy, whether or not there was a stopover in Sicily before he got to Salerno and then Monte Cassino, we don't know. But he comes and there's several, there's actually three different biographies of him, but the, the the common narrative of all of them is he comes to Salerno. Basically, they hear about his skills as a uh, as as a physician, and um, he essentially gets adopted um, by um, Desiderius, Abbot Desiderius of Monte Cassino, and um, comes and spends the rest of his career at Monte Cassino, translating. Arabic medicine into Latin. His translations become the foundation for what will be the medical curriculum that is taught throughout Europe for the next uh, uh, six or uh, 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 about five or six centuries. Wow. Um, so all over Europe. Um, and, that's, and that's one of the amazing um, things about him is that not all of his works, but, but um, uh, a couple of them 
go into making up what we now call the Articello. And that is a collection of five, six, seven um, different texts that are introductions to medicine. So uh, what is a humor? Um, what is melancholy? Uh, what are the, the basic principles of how we control health in the body? So that's his work. He translates a, a text um, that we now call the Isagoge by an Arabic writer, uh, Hunayn ibn Ishaq. And uh, Isagoge means an introduction. And so really, it's just like, you know, in most of our disciplines, we have kind of that basic text, mm-hmm. you know, the right? text, yeah. Yes, yes. It gives the definitions. Um, um, it says essentially why it's important. I was uh, working for a number of years with, with Francis Newton, who is a specialist on Monte Cassino. Mm-hmm. And one, at one point, he just asked me, how much parchment would it have taken to copy all the texts of Constantine? And I realized that I had never done kind of a simple numerical calculation of how much did, did Constantine write? And then how many copies of his texts are there? I now consider that he wrote approximately um, a million words. Wow. I mean, yeah. uh, and and, and maybe more than that, um, because there's certainly works that he, he wrote that, that had been lost. But the Isagoge, for example, basically anybody who called themselves a learned physician would have had a copy of it. There are more copies of the Isagoge than there are of St. Benedict's rule. That was stunning to me of, of realizing that. And, you know, and I haven't even put together a, a, a complete list of, of, of copies, but we're talking thousands of manuscripts that still survive. Mm-hmm. And so if you're talking about impact, this is as impactful as, you know, any individual can be. Now, the second question is how many of them who had copies of this text or, or several of the other kind of key texts that, that, that he produced, how many of them knew that he was the one who did it? That's a different story because, um, and that's another part of, of, of his legacy is to which text is his name attached? And so that's, that's kind of a different story. But the Isagoge, the, the, the one I was just talking about, his name is not attached to it. So even though we're, we're quite sure it was him that translated it, it essentially becomes part of this, this Articello uh, group, but an, in an anonymous way. And when you say his name, uh, Monica, we, we, Constantinus Africanus, right? That, that, that's, that's the name he, he seems to use. Is yes, that... that's, the, that, that's the name that he himself uses. So we have mm-hmm. uh, some of his texts, um, manuscripts written at, well, Yes, we have a couple of manuscripts written at Monte Cassino now mm-hmm. that we can be sure they were written at Monte Cassino, where he is saying Ego Constantinus um, Africanus. So he so and that's the interesting thing about the name Constantine, mm-hmm. because what is the name Constantine? What r- bells does that ring mm-hmm. in the history of Christianity? The bells it rings, mm-hmm. uh, or one of them is the Emperor Constantine, mm-hmm. who was in some respects the most famous convert to Christianity. So anyway, but the, the thing is, is that uh, on that, that issue of his, his original um, religion, there are continuing there. There was a, 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 the, uh, a continued uh, persistence of Christian communities in North Africa, 
even after un, under uh, Islamic rule. So the possibility, and this is this is part of what's really interesting, is that it was such a context where we don't know, and the fact that we don't know kind of opens up these other questions about um, how knowledge was circulating. Certainly everything that he is rendering into Latin is Arabic medicine. I mean, uh, works, uh, we, we also um, call things Islamic medicine um, as well, just because it's coming from an Islamic context. But to be, he translates, I'm, my current estimate is about three dozen different texts. From, that's, that's a lot, right? That's a, yeah, that's a yes. immense yeah. uh, kind of immensely productive. Um, yeah. Okay, so let me recap, right? So he comes from what's now Tunisia. He, he, uh-huh. he, he winds up in, in southern Italy and he yes. starts cranking out these, these translations. We don't yes. really have Latin already, but he obviously picks it up if he didn't. Um, yes. and, just, and also, you know, in doing this, he creates um, the foundations for the study of medicine um, for literally centuries afterwards um we don't know why he came is that right well this is where we, where it gets interesting the three different biographies of mm-hmm. him so one biography essentially says well he's a merchant mm-hmm. um and the, again in the context of the mediterranean in the 11th century that makes complete sense because we know we know how much um commercial activity was going on back and forth across the mediterranean he may have been a, a merchant who specialized in spices, and that's why he knew as much about pharmacology as he did. He's clearly uh, he, he he's he's already clearly literate in in Arabic, mm-hmm. um, so it is not at all unusual, given everything that we know about intellectual culture in Islamic lands in this period, for someone to actually know a lot about medicine without kind of taking on a formal professional um, title of a, of a physician that, you know, people who studied Hadith, uh, clerics and so forth, probably also read a lot of medicine. So his, his level of, there's very little, um, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually tiny. In fact, the, the number of times that he is speaking in the first person and there's nothing that I've encountered thus far that I could say for sure he's talking about an actual practice. That's that, it's not that, necessarily, it's not his own professional, professional expertise. He's well, he, he, he does claim a certain kind of, of, of professional expertise, which thus far I found primarily in terms of his pharmaceutics. I think the, the, the spice merchant slash pharmacologist um, scenario might work. There's another story that he came, uh, he'd been enslaved. Um, and he's brought to Salerno as a slave. And in some kind of context, you know, I don't know, he's doing something out in the open and the prince of Salerno asks some question about urine. And he just kind of pipes up and, you know, and spouts out his, his opinions about, you know, the, how, how you properly diagnose urines. And they say, oh, wow, you seem to know a lot. And then basically that's kind of his entry into uh, kind of higher society. He is patronized. So I already said that he is, uh, he's essentially adopted by Desiderius, the abbot of, of Monte Cassino. He's also patronized by the, both the Lombard and the Norman, we, I guess we can call them royal families um, in Salerno in this period. So he's very well placed. So whatever kind of social clout he came into this context with, 
he exploited it and was able to use it. Um, so I see him as being very influential. And again, that, that question of just kind of the physical investment, how many sheep or cows were killed to make copies of all the books that, that, that he produced. He must have been very well supported. Uh, Francis Newton has, has made the analogy of calling him the, the 11th century equivalent of a MacArthur genius <laughs> of having that kind of investment be made in the work that he was doing. And, and this, this is the other part of the context. And, and it's, it's a, a, a part that I won't be able to, to research, but it's kind of there for the taking for uh, other scholars who want to, to come in and do this work is He's doing all of this work from Arabic. There's also some comparable work that's being done from Greek. So texts from Greek um, uh, being translated into Latin. And of course, with Greek, the Greek culture has persisted on Sicily. This is why the the Sicily connections are are interesting. Um, Greek culture has persisted on Sicily. And he is... Well, I don't know. I th- my gut sense is he sees the, the, the Greek into Latin translators as rivals. I think he wants to be top dog and okay. say, okay, my my Arabic stuff is better than any of the stuff that you have. So he's um, not doing the Greek, we think. It's someone else is doing I the Greek. Uh, if he knows Greek, he knows, you know, bits and pieces, yeah. little uh, words and um, so forth. I don't believe, but but this is where kind of really skilled linguists need to come in and edit these texts, and then and then we can do stylistic comparisons. Um, my Greek um, is nowhere near good enough to do that. But those are the kinds of questions we um, potentially could ask. But the thing is, is that all of the Greek stuff is anonymous. I mean, we don't even have any names to associate with who was translating the Greek. So anyway, it's 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 a big question. But again, the, all of that adds to this sense of this was a really intense environment. And what they're also doing clearly, I mean, Monte Cassino has a phenomenal library. I think it's actually, I think one of the things that Desiderius is doing is actually scouring the libraries of neighboring monasteries because Monte Cassino has incredible clout. It's incredibly wealthy Mm -hmm. um, institution and has it, um, uh, a lot of these other monasteries in the region are its dependents. And I think he's just sending people around and saying, I want to borrow this book, or I'm going to send my scribes to make a copy of whatever you have here. And it's, it's not just medicine. Of course, this is happening with, I mean, I mean, in, uh, any, any classicist will know um, how important Monte Cassino is in this period for, in many cases, unique copies of some of the most precious texts um, to come out of the Roman world. So, um, so for book lovers, Monte Cassino is the place to be, right, in the, in the late it's, 11th century. It's the place to be. And this is the amazing thing about what I see Constantine doing is he's translating from Arabic into Latin. What's happened in medicine in the four centuries um, since the rise of, of, of Islam is that the Arabic world was a direct and immediate inheritor of Greek medicine. Um, medicine, the, even in the Roman world, even at the height of, of the Roman Empire, Greek remained the primary language for, uh, for medicine and philosophy. So there's a lot of stuff that was circulating in the Roman period 
Um, and it was cir uh, circulating actively, but it was circulating in Greek. It never got translated into Latin. And so when we move into late antiquity, a few things get translated into Latin, but not that much. And whereas with, with Arabic, so many things, I mean, just kind of huge numbers of, of, of texts go, sometimes they're going into uh, Syriac first before they go into Arabic, sometimes directly into Arabic. But anyway, just huge um, mm -hmm. numbers of works. And there's a lot of ancient works that we, that only survive in Arabic. Right. Because, because interesting. accidents of, of, of survival. But okay, um, right. So let so, so, so let me recap. Yes, he, he turns up with presumably then a load of Arabic manuscripts. I guess in Monte Cassino, yeah. they they give him a load of resources. He's kind of put in charge, I guess, of a team. Um, yes, and he starts producing this kind of um, oceans of mi a million words. You just said of, yes. of, of yes. texts. Yes. Um, in your work, Monaco, about him, you've mentioned in a few places that this spreads incredibly fast right out of Monte Cassino so it's kind of located you know his, his base is Monte Cassino we don't think he travels north no but his but his manuscripts do right and I I, I wondered yeah why why is that well first of all I, I would want to hedge the, the the fast part of it I think in dribs and drabs um his his work is is being circulated the way I would characterize it is this so Monte Cassino because it's Monte Cassino, is a hub for just a lot of activity. Um, I mean, the uh, Desiderius himself goes on to become Pope. So whatever, what, what I would love to find, let me, let me put it this way. What I would love to find is a letter from Desiderius writing to a friend north of the Alps and saying, oh, I have this incredibly hot scholar who's working for me and he's doing all of this and he's doing all of this. And here's a list of his works. What would you like a copy of? Now, we actually have a couple of very early book lists of Constantinian works, which I think are exactly this kind of thing. We don't have a letter attached that, that says, um, this is what this guy's doing and this is why we're so excited about it. But I think that the, you know, the word got out mm. of there is this work, um, there's these new texts that he's translating. Very strategically, um, Constantine dedicates his biggest and largest work to Desiderius. It's the Pantagmi. Mm. Um, so, you know, and, and then he, he, does a, uh, he uh, dedicates a text on stomach ailments to the Archbishop of Salerno. Um, so he's, he's um, aiming high. Yes, he's 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 covering his bets and kind of paying back yeah. the uh, investment that that's been made in him. But the the place uh, that I would love to say that when I get reincarnated, I'm, I will go back and just spend thirty years doing a study of this. Fleury uh, is okay. one of the places that has not simply very early copies of Constantine's text. It's one of the few places that has copies of his texts in Beneventon. Ah, so that's the, the script with yes. Monte Cassino so, scribes so, used to so write. Beneventon is the script that's used in, in, in Southern Italy, very distinctive in some, um, in many instances, actually very beautiful. But if you haven't been trained um, to read it, it's, it's actually um, pretty difficult. Whereas Caroline, of course, is, is being used all over Europe. 
um, at this point. So Fleury actually has a couple of manuscripts in Benaventon. Okay, so it's um, obviously moving quite fast. And I guess Fleury... Yeah, so Fleury, Fleury is the sister house. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. They, they have a very old um, relationship with, with Monte Cassino. And uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, we know there's all kinds of connections. Um, so what that means is that Constantine's works are getting almost immediately up to France. Mm-hmm. An assistant that um, Constantine have, his name is, it's spelled differently in different contexts, but Adzo or Otto. He was a cleric who had worked in the um, household of the Empress Agnes. And when when she dies, he moves down to Monte Cassino and, and essentially is working as the amanuensis for Constantine. For the rest of his career. So when we find early copies of Constantine's text in Germany, is that Otto who's just sending copies back to the um, institutions he's already uh, affiliated with. So the Norman connection is is very huge. And this this um, connection with the, the um, imperial uh yeah, that's interesting. So this is, I guess, Monte Cassino has all these networks kind of converging oh, on it. Absolutely. And- yeah. Absolutely. And again, this is one of the things where I think there should actually be much more evidence um, about Constantine. I, and, you know, I, I worry sometimes that there, there might be all kinds of things that I'm just missing, because basically what I'm doing is, is just looking for the medical evidence. I, by myself, I can't do um, all the work of, you know, there, there must be you know, all kinds of other ways in which we could, we could document uh, these, these literate networks that are happening but that's one of the big reasons for his his circulation and and but but um he's he's doing a a lot of different work so it's some of his works that get kind of this very quick treatment and very uh quick circulation and others and again he's he's working we we don't know exactly when he arrives but it's probably um the late uh 1070s he is dead by 1098 1099 that's not a year of death. It's simply when he shows up in the, the calendar, um, uh, the, the uh, obituary calendar for Monte Cassino. But if we say he's, you know, he's got a good 20-year period or so of activity, that's plenty of time uh-huh. to, to be working on, on these translations. Uh-huh. And what I am finding is I'm not 100% sure none of these texts are dated. You know, none of them, you know, got a call on that says, you know, <laughs> you know, on Tuesday at 1230, I finished, you know, translating this work. But my sense is that we can look at, at a certain career trajectory. I think that he does some introductory texts. So, for example, his treatise on leprosy. I have a strong sense that that's one of his earlier works. Late in his career, I think he's become a Galen fanatic. I think he's really um, decided, okay, I spent all this time working through these recent Arabic authors. So um, a lot of the uh, good chunk of the, the, the text he translates are by either um, Isaac Israeli or Ibn al-Jazar. And both of them are Arabic-speaking physicians who are active in Cairo, in, in Tunisia. Um, so he's, he translates a good number of, of, of their texts. But I think what he realizes in this work, and especially after doing the text on the stomach, he realizes, wow, they're always talking about this guy Galen. 
I really should, you know, look at some of Galen's original work. And I think he translates at least four different texts of Galen. There, there's a couple of uh, other texts that, that, that might go on that list eventually too. I mean, that's really interesting because the, the biographies you mentioned, um, the medieval biographies, are, oh, there are three, as you said, um, yes. uh, I think they're 12th century. They're quite sketchy, right? And they don't give an order of his works. And I'm kind of fascinated uh, well, no, no, no. There's one, the, the, the Monte Cassino life, it doesn't give an order of his works, but it does give a list of his works. But I'm fascinated um, that you think it might, might be possible to kind of, I don't know, do an almost intellectual biography based on what he's, and, and think about how, I'm, oh. I'm, I'm putting words into your mouth here, but the, well, you can kind of see how his interests change. That's fascinating. That's, that's what I'm trying to do, because one of the things that I think happened, so you had asked about the circulation of his text. Mm. And what I think happens is the early texts have broad circulation. I think the Galen texts, some of them, of the four Galen texts, one, I think there's a 12th century copy. And if I'm remembering right, the other ones, there's no 11th century copy, there's no 12th century copy. They disappear until the 13th century. And that's just kind of a whole other amazing story. And that's really just kind of the, the, the coda that I'm going to put on, on the book. I, I will need another reincarnation to, to research that question separately. But I think there's this one guy in the 13th century who I think, I don't know if he goes to Monte Cassino himself or he, he just has an informant there. His name is um, Richard de Forneval. Um, he's a cleric at Amiens spends a lot of time in Paris. And um, he's very famous in the history of bibliography because he wrote a bibliognomia. Um, it's this catalog raisonné of his, his whole library. And he has, he has texts, and I've only studied um, just the medical texts. Um, he's a physician and a surgeon um, mm-hmm. too. Despite being a cleric, he, mm-hmm. he also um, he got a, a special dispensation to be a surgeon. But he has all of these medical texts that nobody else has copies of. And all of a sudden, he has them, probably as early as the 1240s. And among them is, for example, Constantine's translation of Galen's commentary on the aphorisms. Mm. So this is part of this scenario that I'm putting together about this late fascination with, with Galen. So the, the aphorisms is the foundational text um, of ancient Greek medicine, because it's the aphorisms are all these basically just kind of one-liners of uh, the fo- most famous of which is life is short, the art is long. Um, but then what happens is you have these one-liners, but then you have these commentaries that go on for pages and pages and pages and pages commenting on well what did Hippocrates mean when he said that what is the what does he mean by the art um you know what kind of life is he talking about so so on and so forth so um this I think I can imagine that Constantine saw Galen's Hippocrates uh, Galen's commentary on the Hippocratic aphorisms as just kind of the gold standard of how we interpret what the key is to ancient Greek medicine and, and so, but why did it disappear? Um, because the aphorisms is circulating everywhere. This aphorisms is part of the Articella, that, um, that collection of texts. If Constantine translated 
Galen's commentary on the aphorisms, wouldn't everybody want a copy of it? And the answer I've come up with, especially because this is true of a couple of other texts as well, is I think Constantine was just sitting on them. He says, like, no, I haven't quite finished this Not yet. Quite ready. Not yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we all you know, know I that feeling. With, you know, some of this vocabulary, <laughs> I don't have it right. And I think he, because there's one of the, one of the biographies tells a story that uh, he had a student named Johannes. And it says of Johannes that he died in Naples with all of his master's books. But as you know, the, the, the history of the Neapolitan archives is that much of the, the, the collection was destroyed. Um, I, 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 I always forget what year that was um, with, the, uh, with the big flood in, uh, in Naples. So there's a lot of, of questions I, I suspect we could answer if we knew more about Naples mm-hmm. in this period. But anyway, this guy, Richard de Forneval, somehow he finds I love the idea. He finds the 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 Constantine room in the you know the kind of the old door creaks open. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this all, I mean, yeah, it's, it's absolutely fascinating, and it makes me ask. I mean, so Constantine arrives. Um, all these translations, they're obviously hot property, most of them, and maybe not. You know, there are some works which seem more specialized, or which, as he said, he, he doesn't release. Uh-huh. Um, he's appreciated in his own time, though. I mean, clearly, absolutely. They, they, and yet, yeah. he's not that well-known today. Yes. Um, and I wondered why you thought that might be. Okay. Number one, uh, there are one, two of his texts that have ever been critically edited. Just two. Yes. Yeah. So what that means is that, well, uh, there's uh, many of his texts got printed in the Renaissance. So there are, um, you know, there are printed versions of 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 his text so um in that sense you know people who do study the history of medicine can have been able to get um access now that we live in this you know miracle age of digitization of manuscripts we can just go to um uh, directly to the manuscripts um and and we know a lot more about uh, what those manuscripts are and which ones are early and so forth but the point is is that without the critical edition that means no scholars have actually kind of worked through these questions about what is the development of this text? You know, what was the early form of this text? What are later additions um, or changes or, you know, what sections of the text were lost? So there's just a lot of history that we don't have um, because that scholarly labor hasn't happened. Now, why has nobody done that work? In many fields of medieval studies, we had predecessors in the 17th century, in the 18th century, in the 19th century, who just churned out these you know, nonstop editions of, you know, treatises in, in history, treatises in, uh, in monastic studies and so forth. That never happened in medicine. There was this one guy who was a real fanatic, um, uh, Salvatore de Renzi, um, who published a lot of medical texts in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, but they're, they tend to be very, very bad quality. And he wasn't particularly interested in Constantine. Um, he was really, um, uh, he was on the faculty at the um, the University of Salerno, and he was really kind of a local booster for them. So the scholarly ne- neglect on that level um, is, is one of the answers. The other answer, though, is why hasn't there been more, mo- more motivation for scholars to, um, to look at his stuff? Because, I mean, again, this is amazing. 
yeah. this huge body of text coming from one of the most learned cultures around in the world in the 11th century, all of it's just being dumped in the lap of Latin Europeans. Mm-hmm. Why is nobody looking at it? You know, so I mentioned that one of his, uh, the texts that he translated is the Pantegni. That's a, um, uh, an encyclopedia by a Persian writer named Al-Majusi uh, from the 10th century. And Constantine translated, it's, it's got its own crazy um, history, but Constantine translates and the first half of it, he finishes and dedicates it to, to Desiderius. There's a second half of it that he never finishes. And there's a story that, you know, when he was crossing the Mediterranean, um, he was involved in, in a storm and some of his books got wet. Um, and, and, and uh, yeah, and this is what happened to um, the second part of this, this text. But um, in uh, the 1120s, we're now moving, so he, Constantine is dead, um, but now we're moving into the, the period of the Crusades in the Levant. And this guy from Northern Italy, um, uh, he's known as Stephen of Antioch because that's where he ends up, but he, he's actually from Pisa. He is over now in an Arabic culture. He's a native um, Italian, obviously, but he's in, uh, in Antioch. He learns Arabic. And he gets a hold of his own copy of Almajusi. And then he compares it to what Constantine did. And he says, wait a minute, this is incomplete. It is, um, he's made all kinds of, of, uh, it's incomplete. I'm simply missing most of the second part. It's incomplete in the sense that Constantine abbreviated a lot of the parts when, when he was training. And, and this was the real killer. And he plagiarized. He claimed that this text was his own when in fact it's, it's all of it is by this Arabic writer on the juicy. And so this is already, this is this, he finishes um, this in 1127. So already by the third decade of the 12th century, Constantine has gotten a reputation as a plagiarist and he's still living with that. And I mean, there's there's a, a otherwise really wonderful book that came out a few years ago, you know, just kind of surveying the general phenomenon of, of Arabic into Latin translations mm-hmm. in science and medicine. He has kind of half a sentence on Constantine. That's all, right? That's all. I mean, this and this is you know a very very major, very learned um, scholar, and it's just like uh, Constantine has no importance. And this is the thing, and this is this is a part of the Constantine story that's really important for people to know is that yes, there were other translators of, of medicine. There's all kinds of translators of astronomy and mathematics and various other things as well. But in terms of medicine, there's really only um, four important translators. There's Constantine in the 11th century. There's Stephen of Antioch, um, who basically the only thing he does is translate Almajusi. There is Gerard of Cremona, who is in Toledo, which has also been um, uh, uh, retaken by Christians. And so he's just kind of digging through all the Arabic manuscripts he's finding there. He translates a whole bunch of of things. And then in Pisa, there is a Greek, uh, Greek into Latin translator, um, Burgundio, uh, Burgundio of Pisa. Stephen's translation of Almajusi gets some play, but 
most of Gerard of Cremona's translations. So we know he died in 1187. Uh, we have, um, again, for him, we have a fair amount of biographical information. His works disappear in the 12th century. There's almost no 12th century copies of his texts. The same thing with Burgundio of Pisa. But guess who has copies of all of them in the 13th century? Our guy at Amiens, Richard de Fournier. Like <laughs> so there's some, so, so there's a, so the, the, there's a couple things to come out of this. Number one is even though there was other translation work going on, nobody had the impact and, and the impact in their own lifetime that Constantine did. So Constantine is basically a full century. He has a full century head start yeah. over these other translations. So that's why you will find copies of his Pantagne all over the place. That's why his translation of the Isagoge just kind of, it, it is the standard um, throughout. So his impact, and this has been crazy for me to, to, to recognize all of the ways in which we as scholars have been complicit in this erasure of him because the, once you look at the manuscripts the manuscripts are you know eloquent yeah. in saying how wide how broad how intense um his uh his impact was and so um so the one of the main problem certainly the most important medical translation of uh Gerard of Cremona the guy who's working in Toledo he translates Avicenna's uh canon so that's, that has to have been finished before 1187 um, when he dies. Nobody is even citing it until the second quarter of the 13th century. And it's only in the middle of the 13th century that, you know, people start using it regularly. So there's, a, there's almost a 50-year period of just invisibility of this other work, whereas everybody's got a copy of the Pantagne. So, um, so, he, so he gets there first, basically, and that's why. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and and then he is followed up by works coming out of Salerno. So the 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 text that I cut my eye teeth on as a scholar was the Trotulo, uh collection. The opening text of the Trotula ensemble, which, um, as you know, is three different texts um, on women's medicine that, that get fused into one. The opening text is based on the Viaticum, which is one of the translations that Constantine made. Um, from the Arabic. So even the Trotula is Constantinian. Uh, and the Trotula just kind of takes over all of Europe as, you know, the leading text on, on women's medicine. So, uh, yeah, the impact is profound. And the impact is readily documentable if you look for the evidence. So we're getting to the stage where I think we should be tr- thinking about wrapping up. And, I, and, I, and I've got a question I, I always ask, um, okay. which is, um, what are you working on at the moment? And I'm hoping, Monica, having said how much research is needed on Constantine the African, uh-huh. that you might have some work on that uh, in, in uh, uh, on the go at the moment. Or Oh, I have all kinds of work <laughs> on the go. I've been working on uh, a project on uh, 11th and 12th century medicine for over 20 years now. Yes, I do have all of that going but i what i'm working on immediately is a book on the black death and there's not a direct connection except what i'm finding is that there's a a small connection that is actually uh, seeming to become bigger so as you can tell i've always been interested in these questions of how arabic medicine um come comes into the west and 
Um, so, so I've always, even though I, I'm not trained as an Arabist, I read everything that I can in the languages that I have. Um, so I've always paid, paid attention. And one of the things that's always been obvious to me is that the Islamic world is hit as hard by the Black Death as, as Europe is. Um, and there, there is some, some, some very good scholarship on, on the Black Death experience in the Islamic world. But most of the time, we talk about the Black Death simply as a European phenomenon. But as a teacher, there were so many questions about the Black Death that weren't being logically answered. It's just like, well, where did this come from? Anyway, it's a long story, which would be another thing. And, and, and it's not technically a, an 11th century story, except one little thing that, that, that a tidbit that I will regale you with. This is something I had noticed um, uh, several years ago. So um, the stories about Constantine are that he left. Well, the three biographies give different stories about why he left. One of the stories is that he's enslaved, um, which I already mentioned to you. Another one that he's a merchant, um, so he's just traveling around and apparently just kind of decides to immigrate um, into Italy. The other one is that he fled North Africa. And the story that's told, this is the, the, the Monte Cassino story. The story is that he fled because other scholars were jealous of him. He was so learned. I mean, it's, it's, it's an incredibly elaborate um, biography that says he, basically he traveled the entire known world you know, learning all of these things and learning the science of, of, of the Manichees and, and all of these other things. And he went to Cairo and, and every place. I have, there's no evidence that he did any of these, these things. But the, the story is he went off traveling in the Islamic world and then came back to North Africa. And the scholars there were so jealous of him that they drove him out. What I found was a hint, a hint, a hint, that maybe there's a plague outbreak in North Africa in this period. Now, that would be more persuasive if in Constantine's own writings, he had done more in the way that he translated, because there are, in, in a couple of the texts that he's translating, there are sections where plague is being talked about as a disease. He doesn't seem to understand that. He's, the, uh, I've gone closely through uh, at least one of the texts to see how he's translating it, and he doesn't seem to understand how they're describing disease. So I'm not, I'm not sure that that's a connection that will play out, but it is just another indication of so many ways we need to be asking questions about Europe in a Mediterranean context that uh, there are ways in which, and this also has been very interesting to me. It's not it's not kind of a lovey-dovey situation. I think there are real cultural barriers that are in place. And I, I expect it's something that you're going to be documenting in, in your project. Um, so one of the things, as, as I mentioned, is I see Constantine's, one of his strengths being in pharmaceutics. The Islamic world has developed a much richer pharmacopoeia in these four centuries, the first four centuries of of Islamic rule because it's dispersed, because it has all of these trade connections, because, you know, oh, you need nutmeg um, from, from the spice islands in Indonesia, you know, okay, here. You need ambergris, you know, from off the coast of Yemen. Oh, sure. So Arabic medicine has a much richer pharmacopoeia. Constantine's translating that. And in fact, there are certain words 
that we know that he coined because they, they're, they're words like lapis lazuli. I have been able to document that that is in fact his coinage. Wow. I mean, not that lapis lazuli wasn't circulating before, yeah. but it wasn't circulating with, with the regularity. And then there's some other ingredients where um, they simply never have showed up in not in simply not in a medical text, but not in any other country. One of the things that comes in, it is known before, but it's not prominent in uh, Latin medicine is sugar. And sugar is the foundation for syrups. Sugar is the foundation for several other kinds of medicines. It's more used as a vehicle um, for for uh, transmitting medicines. But sugar is, it just goes boom in the late 11th century. And so anyway, that's another kind of analysis I'm going to be doing with, with Constantine is just using those clearly unique or new items of Materia Medica as tracer elements of, of just seeing, okay, when does this come in? How is the, the vocabulary um, being developed and, and where does it show up? And there's a, there's a um, German uh, thesis that's going to be published soon that is making the, the argument that it seems likely that Constantine himself was involved in basically rewriting the foundation of Latin pharmaceutics. I've just changed the weights and measures. Weights and measures are the foundation of pharmaceutics is that, you know, if you're going to come up with a recipe, you have to say, okay, what is the ingredient, but how are you going to measure it? And he redoes the Latin, the Latin system of, of weights and measures um, in alliance with, with um, uh, uh, some, some people at, at Salerno. So anyway, that's the, uh, that's the amazing payoff of, of this work. And all of this work is based on, um, I'm working with the original manuscripts um, of these texts. And that's really important for this project. And that's why Francis Newton's work on the scribes at Monte Cassino is so transformative, is having the assurance, not simply because, you know, with, with paleography, you can, even the best paleographers can only date things within a, within a quarter century or so. But having um, uh, Francis's expertise of being able to say, these particular manuscripts were done during Constantine's lifetime. They were done at Monte Cassino. That just puts a whole new spin on everything because basically what it means is if it's in this manuscript that means constantine approved of it wait, and wait, 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 wait. we're talking here and i just feel a whole new research agendas are opening up um you know just <laughs> just during this just during this, this this conversation i mean i'm really struck um by your point that's fundamental isn't it that yeah we can't think of in this case medicine and in this case 11th century but it's impossible really to think about european history outside of that mediterranean context and, and absolutely 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 yes yeah. Um, I think we should we we're, we're we're out of time, Monica. But so we should we should we should finish it there. Um, but okay. thank you, thank you once again very much for your for your, for your time. Oh, it's it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs>